We are um, finally at the season that we have all been hoping for, the season of Christmas. And I know different... Um, too many things. Um, we, have, we have different ideas about when the season begins. Just out of curiosity, how many of you are diehards who, who insist on waiting till Thanksgiving? Okay, all right, there's four of us. Okay, um, so, so how many of us started in November? Started, you know, doing, you know, our Christmas season, whatever that means, started in November. Okay, a couple of hands. Okay, how many started in October? Okay, I saw there was a store here in town that started in August. And um, so uh, I know people have uh, all kinds of ideas about when it starts, but let me tell you the correct answer. The correct answer of when the Christmas season begins, when does the most wonderful time of the year begin? I will tell you, it begins when the Sears wish book arrives. Now, that was a generational test because some of you got that and some of you didn't. The Sears Wish Book no longer exists, but there was a time. It was kind of the Amazon Prime for boomers. Um, and uh, the way it worked, I'm a little fuzzy on it, but it arrived, I don't know, so I, I, time kind of was, was fuzzy, but it was the, it was the, the hinge on which history turned um, when the Christmas Wish Book arrived from Sears. Because what you'd do is you'd go through it, and you'd go looking through it, and you'd find all the many, many things you wanted, and then you would write your letter to Santa... And somehow Santa and Sears were connected. I'm not exactly sure how that all worked, but um, but you know elves might have been involved. I'm not really I'm not clear on that. But but then you know Christmas you found what you wanted under the tree, and I can tell you what I wanted. I wanted the Major Matt Mason. So I, I love the fact we live in the internet age and we can find this stuff now. I you know where would you find a Sears catalog from 1966? Well, the answer is. Online, So this is the Major Matt Mason. He is a spaceman because this was the 60s and space was everything. I wanted a Major Matt Mason so bad, um, and I got one. And that was a great Christmas, and I don't know what happened to it. Um, so here's here's what he looked like. Um, uh, but the problem with the Major Matt Mason, you see he's got those little bendy things in his elbows like a space suit, you know, so that it bends in space. And it was a really cool toy. It didn't have the little you know, kind of hinged things like a G.I. Joe or something has, right? It was, it was a spaceman. It looked the part. The problem is the way they worked that is they had soft, they had soft rubber for the, the figure and, um, there was a, a stiff wire inside his arms and legs and then you would bend it into position. So, you know, he's doing whatever spacemen do, uh, right up until the day the wire breaks. And then from then on his, his right arm is like this and, then the wire breaks in the other arm, and now, now he walks around like this. And then eventually the legs break, and you've got a spaceman who can only do this. So at some point, I lost track of mine. I do remember that they were, at some point, they were broken. I had, I had Major Matt Mason. I had another one who had a red suit. I don't know what his name was. And they had a space alien friend whose name was Callisto. He had a big, uh, clear green head. And I remember all this, um, but I also, um, uh, the reason I'm bringing this all up is because I can tell you how much I wanted that toy for Christmas, how much it meant to me that I got it, and yet at the same time, I kind of lost sight of it. I, I, I remember I had it long enough to break it, 
But, you know, you know how long that can be, parents, right? So it could be <laughs> later that day. It was longer than that, but, um, but, uh, but it did eventually break, and um, I, I must have gotten rid of it at some point. I don't remember seeing it um, uh, at different points in my life. And when we went to uh, clean out my dad's house a couple of years ago, there was no sign of it. So um, if I really wanted one, I could get one, though, because, because this is the era we live in. So um, on, on eBay, you can find one. So you can find the one that is um, uh, in mint condition um, with uh, no broken wires. That's $175. Uh, but if you're willing to settle for one with broken wires, then you can pick that up for a steal at just eighty dollars. So, um, and you know, so so if you've got one in your attic or something, I'd love to have it. But um, but I'm not going to go buying one on eBay. In particular, you know, I'm certainly not going to buy the one with the unbroken wires because it would be a matter of time until they broke, and I would see the hundred dollars fleeting out the window. And so um, so no major Matt Mason for me. And um, I, I bring this up because it's an example of how we can really, really want something. And, you know, for you, maybe it wasn't Major Matt Mason. I don't know what it was for you. And maybe it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was last year, you know, and the thing that you really wanted last year. And, and I hope you got what you wanted whenever that was, and it really meant a lot to you. But my guess is it doesn't mean as much today because our life circumstances change, right? I grew out of Major Matt Mason, even if the legs and arms were still bendable, I probably wouldn't have held on to that uh, beyond, say, elementary school or high school, college, I don't know, somewhere in there. Um, I would have given up my major Matt Mason at some point. And whatever it is that meant so much to you is kind of the same way. Our circumstances change or the, the thing changes, and you no longer get what you once got from it. So so um, that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about how there are things that we want but we know going in that some of them have a real shelf life. And we're going to talk about the things we want for Christmas and how we can have things that have a infinite shelf life. And, and the, the idea is that, is that the things that God gives have an infinite shelf life. They are designed not just to last us through the rest of our life here on earth, but through all eternity. So we're going to be talking about what we want for Christmas. And we're going to start by talking about hope. Uh, that's really kind of the, the, the big idea for the whole, the whole conversation is this idea we have things we hope for and we want to hope for good things. Um, and, um, so, so that's kind of the big idea and we're kind of setting the table for the whole conversation today. But I think it's also very, very apt because we live in a time where we could easily give up hope. We could easily find ourselves giving in to hopelessness. Um, you know, you can, you can think of all the different reasons, right? Um, we just heard this week that we get a brand new variant, right? Well, here's the bad news, right? There were variants before Omicron, and there's going to be variants after Omicron. Uh, I, I saw that Dr. Fauci said that we will not defeat this virus, right? It's staying. The only question is you prepared when it arrives for you, right? That's, that's the big question about all these variants. They're going to keep coming. Uh, it is an organism. It mutates. Get ready for it. So um, that's out there, and and as a result, the pandemic. Hopefully, we will uh, we will be able over time to uh, come down off our alert status of of infinite pandemic. But but that's the kind of thing where I start to lose hope that maybe we never will. Um, that we will always be excited about 
the pandemic. And that's just one of countless things. You know, how many, how many uh, ripple effects has the pandemic had? You know, think about people who are in school, the kind of impact that that's had on their learning. You know, there was a study just, um, the week of Thanksgiving about how, how, um, how, how bad some of the impacts have been on people in elementary school over the past two years. There's all kinds of signs about that. We've heard about people with job loss and, and, uh, uh, other, you know, deferred health situations um, that they had to they had to defer, and those things got worse than they would have been. So there's all kinds of ways that there the, the ripple effects, all these things that we might say, well, you know, I'm kind of losing hope here. And then if that's not enough, there's things like you know climate change and supply chain difficulties and you know inflation and and um, then there's people. You know, those are kind of abstract, but then there's people, right? You know, and and. We saw we saw just yesterday there was a killing here in Anchorage, or excuse me, a shooting. I think it was a killing um, in Anchorage, um, and in some parts of the country that's that's uh, that's a, any day that ends in a Y. Um, and uh, we saw just uh, last week there was that atrocity in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, where somebody drove their SUV through a parade, killing six people and injuring fifty. So there are lots of reasons we can say, man, is there any reason to be hopeful today? Is there, you know, why don't we just pack it in? It's just kind of a miserable world we live in. It's easy to lose hope and give in to hopelessness. But but that's that's the reason we're going to talk first about hope, because hope is the remedy for despair. If you're following along in the outline, hope is the remedy for despair. And the good news is that we're not the first people to feel this way. We're not the first people. And honestly, there are people down through the years who would look at our problems and say, I wish I had it as easy as you do. We're going to read about a situation in the Bible today because there's all kinds of examples of this in the Bible. But really, you know, ask your grandparents. There's, <laughs> this is not a new situation for people. It is something that people have been dealing with as long as there have been people. So we're going to look at a situation in the Bible and see the kind of hope that, um, that, uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke about. So the prophet Isaiah worked, um, his ministry was in the period of about Roughly 700 BC, so a couple of decades one side or the other, depending on what part of the book you're looking at. So, um, so he, about 700 BC, and um, he his his book is alternating between our problems. You know, he's talking to Israel or to Judah, the nation of Judah. He's he's alternating between between um, uh, saying God sees the way you're behaving. God wanted you to be a people set apart for Himself, but if you're going to behave like the other nations. Then you're going to get, you know, you know, play stupid games, get stupid prizes, right? If you're going to, if you're going to behave like the other nations, you're going to, you're going to wind up in the same kind of situation as all the other nations. So he's, he's foretelling that the, the path they're on will not lead to a good place and how God will allow the nations to, to, um, the, the nations that surround them to punish them. Um, but he's also holding out hope that despite all that, you know, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to stand back and watch while these things happen because because I wanted you to be different, and I want you to get back on the right path. So that's a lot of what the the prophet Isaiah is talking about. But a lot of it is saying, and here's why you can still hope in God despite all that, despite the fact that you're now in a big mess. And the mess that Isaiah is talking about mostly is um, attributed to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. There were lots of Assyrian empires. It actually a succession of one empire after another. It lasted about a 1,000 years. The, the Neo-Assyrian is the last one. It's the newest one. 
and um, it was from um, eight eight uh, I don't know about eight hundred BC to uh, early in the six hundred uh, early in the six hundred BC. So um, so it was one of Judah's neighbors. Now Judah is down there um, uh, where the arrow is. So. <clears throat> In 820, uh, 824 BC, um, the, the Neo-Assyrian Empire was kind of a problem off yonder. But by the time Isaiah's on the scene, by the time Isaiah is prophesying, um, it's, it's been about a hundred years. So at the end of the 700s, they have, they have expanded. And so they are more of a threat to Judah. Here's Judah again. You can see where Judah is. And so that's in 824. And then um, by the time of the end of Isaiah's ministry, uh, that's where Judah is. So Judah has been surrounded. Um, the, the neighboring countries have been conquered. And Judah has held out. But it has been ugly. You know, uh, and it, it's it's nothing that makes people have, have a sense of ease. They're thinking, you know, these Assyrians, you know, they mean business. When they conquer a city, anybody who lives will probably get uh, carted off into slavery, or no, marched off into slavery somewhere else in some other country. They deported whole nations uh, to other parts of their empire because it made the, the country they just conquered that much weaker. So uh, there was, you know, all the usual stuff, you know, the, the looting and the burning, rape and pillage and murder, all kinds of things. It was not a pretty thing to get conquered by Assyria. And if you read through the past couple of chapters at this point, we're going to be looking at chapter 11, but if you read from about chapter 6 forward, you can see that a crisis has just happened. And Isaiah is now saying, unfortunately, that's not the last crisis. Yes, you know, things have, have taken a good turn for a while, but it's really going to be the the way things look for you for a long time and and he was right we know now how right he was because after the neo assyrian empire um came the babylonians they conquered the uh, they conquered the assyrians the babylonians were then conquered by the persians the persians were conquered by the empire of alexander the great and then rome conquered um the the countries that were still um greek uh, after that so so for the next 700 years, there's going to be this succession of empires. Judah is going to be sitting there, and it's going to become a plaything of these great empires. And that's the situation. He's saying, it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be ugly for a long time. There's going to be kind of an ebb and flow, but there's not going to be any relief. But, but, take heart. Have good hope. Why? Because a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. So he begins by saying that um, he, if you if you go back to the previous chapter, he's talked about how how the the Assyrians um, have have punished um, Israel, but they have been merciless in doing so. And God is no happier when the Assyrians do bad things than when Israel does. So he says, "I've got a whole thing I'm going to do with the Assyrians. They're going to get what's coming to them too, and it's going to be like uh, uh, somebody has felled an entire forest." So he's got this imagery working of of uh, stumps of, of a forest that is, is all that's left. And he says, and really, Israel's kind of like that. Israel, Judah is kind of like that. He says that that um, that uh, the the leadership, the political leaders of our country have all have all been cut down. There's nothing much of the kingdom. You know, the the kingdom was established 300 years earlier, but there's not much to look at anymore. It's kind of a stump. But he says, but hold on, hold on. A shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? 
Jesse is the father of King David. King David is the mythic king. He's King Arthur. He's, he's Charlemagne. He's the one who did what we were all hoping he would do. He is, he is the greatest king of Israel. And everybody would look back and say, man, we need a king like David again. And he said, well, guess what? That's exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get a king like David. A king, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. I think maybe, um, uh, He's thinking about Jesse. What, what do we know about Jesse? Well, if you if you know the story of King David, uh, King David was the person was was one of the children of, of Jesse, but he was the last person anybody would have guessed. In fact, Jesse did not bring him in to be checked out by the prophet to see if he would be the the next king. He's out doing his shepherding out in the out in the um, back forty or something, and uh, the prophet has to have him have him brought forward so he can anoint him to be king. Nobody expected David to be the king. So uh, maybe that's a part of the stump of Jesse. But but he's saying there will be a new king, a king as good as that great king, the king we all think about, King David. And he says the Lord's spirit will rest upon him, just like it did on David. The Lord's spirit will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. All the things you would hope for from a king he will have that, just like David did. He's going to be a great king. He will delight in fearing the Lord. Now, if you are familiar with the story of David, you know oftentimes David did, but sometimes David didn't. Sometimes David did not fear the Lord. David satisfied his own appetites. And um, uh, he's saying, so he's going to be better than David. He's going to be better because he will delight you know, the thing that, that actually brings him joy will be fearing the Lord, will be worshiping God and obeying the the covenant. He says, he won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will do exactly the things that the current leadership has not been doing. He will He will behave in a way that keeps you from having, as a nation, to be punished by your surrounding neighbors. He will not judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will reestablish justice in the land. And not only justice, he will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. The people who have the least access to justice will be given justice. I saw a statistic this week that said the average American, um, the average uh, public defender in America has 200 active cases. So think about how much justice you're getting if you're represented by a public defender. He's saying that even the, the, the impoverished people, the poor and the needy, they will have Equal access to justice. There will be justice for all. That's how great this will be. And he will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. So, so we might say, oh, I'm not sure if I like that. But, but remember, your cousin George wasn't just carted off into slavery in some foreign country. So there's probably a little bit of kind of, you know, justice includes punishing evildoers. So there's some of that. But notice what he says. He says, um, he will strike the violent not with a not with a, a sword or you know uh, you know some other weapon of war. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. So even even the way he relates to the the surrounding nations, the wicked people in the earth, that will be different than the ways of the earth. He won't just be you know one more tyrant who gets up on a throne and rules by force. There's something different about him. Whatever that whatever that means, he'll strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips will be what he uses to kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness, the belt around his waist. And at this point, we're kind of going, okay, I got the idea. Better than David. Okay, 
great king, better than anybody we've had for 300 years, and probably even better than King David. I got it. But really, you know, is this like a press release? You know, who wrote this thing? You know, you know, if, if, if this guy was running for president, I'd vote for him, right? But the problem is, so everybody running for president would say the same things about themselves. They would all say, I'm, I'm the wonderful person you should vote for, right? Uh, isn't this kind of laying it on a little bit too thick? You know, you know, shouldn't we moderate our expectations? Shouldn't we kind of scale down our hope a little bit so we won't be disappointed? And Isaiah says, oh, no, no, no. Raise your expectations. You need to aim even higher. He says, he says there, will be, <laughs> there will be a complete change in the order of nature. He says, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. So they'll be like domesticated, you know, you send your kid out to feed the chickens, right? That a little child can can lead a leopard and and a wolf and a young lion. That's that's how tame nature will be. And not just um, subject to human um, uh, uh, will, but uh, one another. They will get along with each other. There'll be this great establishment of peace in the world. The cow and the bear will graze, the young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. He's saying, he's saying, whatever you've been thinking about in this in this new kingdom established by this new king, raise your sights. Don't lower them. Raise them. Think even more, because you'll still probably be too low. He says, a nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. A, a, a young child hasn't learned, hey, when you walk through that grass, you need to be careful because there could be a snake in the grass and it could bite you, right? The, the child doesn't know there are these dangers, right? They haven't learned to, to be wary of the snake. But more than that, the snake is a symbol. The snake is the symbol of the cause of humanity's sin, the, the, the loss of innocence, the, the corruption of the world. And he's saying, even snakes, even the symbolic representation of evil, they won't be a problem. Snakes won't be a problem, not even for innocent children. They, and, and no one's sure is he saying those animals or people in general, they won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. So here in Judah, but the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the seas. It says everybody will, will experience this, this great, this great New reality, this this really return, um, this this repair. Everything that has gone wrong with creation, everything that's gone wrong with people, everything that's gone wrong with the wild animals, everything that has gone wrong, it will all be set right by this new king. That if your if your expectations were low, you need to raise them. Don't lower them because you're not going to have just another King David. You're going to have the one that king david pointed to you're going to have the one that king david was a was a shadow of a simple representation like a child's drawing king david is only a hint of what this new david will be like and best of all on that day the root of david this this new king will stand as a signal to the peoples the peoples the nations that surround uh, judah that even even those foreigners who right now we look at with either fear or hatred or both, they too will be caught up in this new thing that God is doing. The nations will seek him out and his dwelling will be glorious. That when all of humanity is gathered up into God's temple, then 
his dwelling will be truly glorious. So what is the lesson number two? When you hope for something, think bigger. Everything will tell you, no, you know, you need to moderate your expectations. You need to kind of, you know, don't, don't get ahead of yourself, you know, chill out, relax, right? And you say, no, no, think bigger. So. Is that a good idea? Should we think bigger? Are we just setting ourselves up for failure? If we think big, if we have high hopes, are we just deluding ourselves? Karl Marx said about religion that it was the opiate of the people. If we have high hopes, are we just, you know, self-medicating? Friedrich Nietzsche said that of all the, the, the things that are bad, hope is the worst evil because it prolongs torment. And nowadays, science is telling us they were right. It's true. Hope is actually beneficial. There was a, a, a study that of, of veter, veterans uh, who were suffering from PTSD, and they found out, they measured them early in the study, and they found out who was basically the most hopeful on, on this scale, who had different indicators of hope. And then they, they checked them at the end of this study, and they found out that the ones who had scored highest in hope had the fewest symptoms of PTSD and um, depression. A different study in 2010, they found out that uh, people who scored highest in hope had better athletic, academic, job, and health outcomes. Um, uh, scientists have told us that having hope blocks pain. It releases endorphins. And people who have serious illnesses in particular should be aware it can, um, it not only reduces anxiety and depression, but it actually promotes immune function. So having a hope is a good thing. Marx was right. Nietzsche was right. Hope is a good thing. And worse problems call for bigger hope, not smaller. The bigger the problem, the bigger the, the, the suite of problems that we face today, the more hope we need. So, third item, hope is the best medicine. So, what do we do with this? Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest something you can do with it. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to think about something you want. And, you know, Christmas presents are fine. You know, if you have a major Matt Mason or maybe you have a, let's get along this Christmas. Let's not have that argument like last year. Whatever it is, you know, Christmas is fine. You don't have to think world peace, right? Uh, but we'll get there. So start with the thing you, you really want to happen. Start with something you hope for and write it down. And then ask yourself why you want that. Why do I want that? What what is what is my what do I think that that will produce? What, you know what is the what is the what is the reasoning behind me wanting that particular thing? Right? <laughs> I wanted a major Matt Mason because I was a child of the space age. I wanted to think about astronauts. I wanted to have fun with my friends. We'd play with our major Matt Masons and we. would you know, colonize the moon or whatever we did. I don't even know. But I wanted to expand my my thinking about space, right? It was something that I really wanted to do. Wanted to I wanted to really appreciate the universe. I wanted to expand out into the universe. I I wanted to explore. So think that way. Keep thinking that way. Keep raising your sights until finally you get something, well yeah, I can't have that. Right? I can't have world peace. I can't, you know, colonize the moon. Whatever that looks like. We cannot possibly get through a Christmas dinner without a fight. 
you know, whatever cannot possibly happen without God. And then pray for that. Raise your hopes. Say, I'm hoping for this good thing. And hope for it. Pray to God for it. Because God is a God who rewards hope. Sometimes it doesn't happen on our schedule. I told that to the children. But God keeps his promises. And God wants us to be hopeful. Even in this book that is filled with such dire circumstances. Over and over again, Isaiah says, but hold on. That's not the whole story. There's hope. God wants us to be hopeful. So lift your sights. Raise your sights. Raise your hopes until only God can satisfy them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for hope. Um, help us to raise our hopes, to have high hopes, to believe in things that only you can deliver. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.